Hello and welcome to another episode of the Code One Careers podcast. Today we're entering the world of firefighting. This was a really awesome chat with Jack, who has now worked his way up to the role of a senior firefighter. We unpacked what the academy was like, what goes through their head when arriving at fires and car accidents, and the day-to-day life of what it's like as a firefighter. I had a lot of fun recording this one, and I hope you guys enjoy today's pod. Now, as always, massive thanks to our sponsor, Police Fit. If you are needing some extra assistance to pass the physical standards to enter your job role, or just need some extra accountability with your training, Brad over at PoliceFit is your man. Link to his website is in the show notes. Now, let's get stuck in. All right, Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Um, thanks very much for coming on. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, all things firefighting today. So um, we're probably going to try and expel the rumours of how much sleep you guys get a night shift. And uh, I mean, we see you guys at car accidents and that sort of stuff. But other than that, you guys are sort of these mystical creatures that hang out at station and lift weights and <laughs> go and uh, play with kids at schools and that sort of stuff. So... Um, yeah, we're going to get stuck into that. So let's talk about, take me back to your reasons of why you wanted to join the fireys and that sort of stuff and uh, the recruitment phase. Yeah, yeah. so um, I moved out from England in, I think it was 2016. Um, and when I when I originally came out from England, I was just like wakeboarding professionally. And that's where I met you because obviously you used to be a, a lifeguard at the, at the wake park in Blyby. So that's where I used to wakeboard and I used to do a bit of coaching down there as well. And so the reason I came out to Australia was the off-season for wakeboarding is the Australian summer. Um, And obviously back home in the UK, uh, that's the English winter, so it's freezing. So for the the off-season, I wanted to come somewhere warm to train. So I did that for a few years. So I'd be out in Australia for the summer and then travel, do the pro tour in the Australian winter. Um, And it was awesome, but it was one of those things where, like with wakeboarding, you make enough money to do it and travel the world with your mates and doing all the competitions and have an awesome time but not enough to set yourself up so then in my early 20s which i appreciate is still relatively young i kind of thought oh i want to do something where i'm going to set myself up you know you know try and make a decent living you know find a career whereas wakeboarding was awesome short term but not something i was going to do forever and then kind of on a whim i applied for the fire service down at the wake park i started talking to someone that was a firefighter and it just it sounded awesome sound really cool um you know every single day is different as you can imagine and sounds sounds pretty lame but um i kind of want to have a job where you know you're you're helping people um which i imagine you know that's what a lot of the a lot of the listeners also <laughs> kind of want um but yeah like i just kind of thought i want to have a job where where i'm you know i'm going to work and the the sole purpose is to make someone's day better yeah and obviously like, being a firefighter being a paramedic that's kind of you know what, what you're doing you're going to work to potentially you know save someone's life or you know help get them out of a bad situation um so kind of on a whim i applied for the fire service and yeah so it was kind of it was a long process it took about from putting in my expression of interest it took about six months until i heard anything and then in that off that six months so the first thing you have to do and i'm pretty sure it still is the same the first thing you have to do is a beep test um, and it just so happened you were allowed six weeks to do the beep test. And that six weeks, um, I was actually back in the UK for that entire six weeks. So I was kind of freaking out thinking, oh man, I've waited so long to, you know, <laughs> for the applications to open. And the entire time the beep test is open, I'm in the UK. Um, so I called someone up and they said, oh, you can just do it in the UK, but get someone to sign a stat deck for you. 
So I just got a PT from the local gym. I just did it out front with him. I just paid for an hour PT session and then got him to sign a stat deck. And that was good enough to kind of get me through to the next round. Um, and then there was a load of aptitude testing, interviews, psychological evaluations, you know, criminal history checks before actually kind of getting um, offered the job. And then four months at the academy and then provide you pass the academy, then you're in and you're on the trucks. Awesome. And so in terms of preparation for the recruitment phase, obviously it goes for 12 months on average. Um, I mean, you're a bit of a physical specimen, so it doesn't look like the beep test would have been too much of an issue. But going through like the panel interview and the stuff like the OFAT and that sort of stuff, which is the occupational fitness test, um, did you have to do any training or any preparation or did you just rock up and get in? Yeah, so I've kind of always, like on the physical side of things, I've always played a lot of sports. So as I said, I did a lot of wakeboarding, which keeps you fit. I've always played a lot of rugby and I just like going to the gym. It's just something that I enjoy. So the beep test wasn't too bad. I just kind of rocked up and did it. And then same thing with the OFAT. So with the OFAT, they actually offer um, like practice days. So prior to you actually doing your OFAT, you can go down and just practice the, it's, I'm not sure exactly what would be on it nowadays, but it's, you've got to drag a hose around like a, a big salvage drum, um, you know, which is quite heavy, but I just wanted to go and do it because obviously I really wanted the job. So I just thought any advantage that I can get, you know, I want all the practice I can get. And like you had to hit, uh, you had to use like a sledgehammer on a pressure plate and that sort of thing. And you had to, you know, put X amount of um, like pressure through this plate. And the OFAT is, I think it's like a nine minute, it's like a nine minute, um, course basically and i just wanted to have as much practice of that as i could so i did that and it wasn't too hard um the aptitude testing i kind of did an online aptitude test here and there but probably didn't didn't do as much as i could do but kind of just fluked it through um and then probably the hardest thing to do is the interview mm. and now when i've got friends going through i give them loads of information yeah. about just kind of like they've almost got like a like a checklist in front of them of keywords and phrases and just different things they want you to say, like the core values of QFES and, you know, the, like what the um, job role of a firefighter looks like, you know, the different things we do. Um, and then obviously have like knowledge of like what a roster is and just basically show that you've done your homework. And that's, that's I mean, that's why I'm running the podcast as well is that you can, if you're interested in joining, you can listen. We'll go through all that sort of stuff and uh, stop you from having to go and knock on the fire station door and say, oh, can I please talk to a fire? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and like looking back at it, like now all of the information I give my friends who are trying to go through, I didn't have any of that. I just kind of went in with just general job interview prep and I look back at it and I think oh, I have no idea how I kind of made it through. I must have, you know, just had a, had a really nice panel or obviously, I don't know, maybe connected with a panel. But in terms of actual fight, like firefighter specific stuff, I didn't know too much. Um, but yeah, so did did the interview and then, yeah, four, four months at the academy and then on the trucks. Awesome. And so talk us through the academy. So... QAS, the Queensland Ambulance Service, do share this facility down in Brisbane with the fireys. So we do get to see you guys do a bit of marching around, a bit of drill um, and all that sort of stuff. So talk us through, like, your first day. How does how does that roll through? Yeah, so um, my first day, like, I was absolutely cacking my pants. Just, I don't know, like, I'm relatively confident in general, but I just think it was just so far out of my comfort zone. Um, and obviously it's just such a big lifestyle change. But so as you said, you've got QAS down at QCSA, which is the Queensland Combined Emergency Services Academy. Um, and you've got all done. Of, yeah, thanks. Um, you've got all of the like QAS um, recruits there. 
who are just incredibly chill, just, you know, walking around, just relaxed. <laughs> and then um, the firefighters, it's like they try and run it like pretty like military style. So we're marching around and I've like never marched in my life. And um, I don't know if anybody knows what square gating is. So square gating is when you're marching, when you move your right, your right leg and your right arm at the same time. And so obviously you don't want to square gate because you look like an idiot. Um, but so you'd be marching in a big in the big group. So our class was like 32 and we had a bunch of ex-military people in there who were like great at marching and great guys. So they really helped me with it. But the first like three days, it sounds ridiculous, but like I couldn't stop square gating. Like <laughs> I couldn't work out how to work normally because you're trying to like walk in time with everyone else. And it sounds really easy, but I honestly like I couldn't work out how to walk properly when I was marching. Um it's funny you say that because in 2022, I joined the Army Reserve. So I went down and did six weeks down at Kapuka and very much similar, getting yelled at for square gating and arms at breast pocket height and trying to turn on the balls of your feet. It's super weird. But then when we finished, we were so traumatized from getting yelled at for six weeks when we we're getting on the plane to leave. We we're all still marching out to the yeah. plane. It was the weirdest thing ever. And we're like, what are we doing? Yeah, it's hilarious. But it's also hilarious, like now looking back at it, especially because when you're at the academy, it's just so serious all the time. No joking around. Anybody that's like a higher rank of you, you know, you have to, you just, you stand up when they come into the room at attention and that sort of thing. And since I've been out of the academy, I haven't marched once, <laughs> but you just think that must be what it is like. And, you know, you call everyone by their rank when you're at the academy. So every single, so a station officer is basically the person who's in charge at the station and runs the, runs the jobs, the incidents that you go to. And when you're at the academy, you must like call the person like, so and then their last name so like so mitchell or whatever whereas like and then when i went to the uh, when i went to my station i just thought that was what it was like <laughs> so when it, so when i came into the into the station i was like so how are you and he goes mate don't <laughs> <call me." laughs> um but yeah so four months and it's it's pretty it's pretty full-on so monday to friday for four months i don't know what the accommodation situation is like now i think everyone's staying at like at the quest hotels down there at cannon hill so it's real nice but when i went through the you either have the option of staying at the police academy which is down in oxley which is obviously a big drive up to q caesar yeah it's where we stayed as well not yeah. the uh, nicest accommodation yeah. oh it's wild i don't understand why they've changed it i think maybe because they maybe put more police recruits now so there isn't like enough space but now mm. everybody's staying at quest hotels which is cool but for, for me, it was either at the police academy or I had like family friends who lived relatively close to um, Q Caesar and they had like a lovely house on the river. So I was like, oh, I'll just stay with them and drive in. Um, and then, yeah, so Mon Monday to Friday for 16 weeks. The first couple of weeks is just really, really basic skills and you're kind of learning about the organization um, and then just your basic skills of like shipping a standpipe, which for those of you who don't know is basically how you get water out of a fire hydrant in the ground um coupling up poses coupling up branches and just so branches like the nozzle on your hose um and just learning the super basic skills which looks super easy but when you've never done them before it's actually it's actually really hard and obviously every single thing you do is a completely new skill so just in like roll like you know shipping a standpipe rolling a hose coupling up the the branch spraying the branch there's like you know 15 different individual skills in that and when you've never done any of them before there's actually a lot of stuff going on um and then the next six weeks is predominantly learning how to pump water out of the truck so on your fire truck you've got 1500 liters of water typically um on a on a fire truck um, the person that's driving the truck is the person who's in charge of the pump so when you rock up at a fire of some description 
um, you put the pump into like pump mode and then it's your job as the driver to get the right pressures. And then 1500 liters sounds like a lot of water, but you're actually, you know, you'd be spraying out the hoses. You might be spraying 400 liters a minute, which means you've only got 300. So you've only got three minutes or so to actually get water in before running out. So just kind of like learning all the basics about how to pump, um, how to like book out um, people and breathing apparatus and stuff. And then about week eight is where you get into the more serious stuff, like where you actually start to go to the, like the actual building fires that is like a controlled environment, you know, but you're actually putting out real fires and then you learn how to do the, the road crash rescue stuff with the, with the hydraulic tools and then all the technical rescue stuff like the vert rescue with the ropes and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of like, it's pretty stressful the whole time, but then towards the lot, the last eight weeks is kind of the really business end and that's where it starts to get pretty hectic yeah cool and so does it finish in sort of like a culminating exercise that you sort of have to do to pass yep so it's kind of it's different now to when i went through so i went through in a group of 32 um but we were split up into two um into two like 16 um two groups of 16 like classes basically and in the last eight weeks as i said so that's like the business end of it you have like what they call live fire which is where you're actually putting out the fires in the control environments for us, we had live fire right at the end, like the last three weeks at the end was live fire. So it was like super hectic. And then there was kind of one final exercise and they didn't tell you that you've already passed, but everyone had already passed. And then it was just like some hectic exercise. Um, meanwhile, the other the other group of 16 had actually done their three weeks of live fire the three weeks prior to us doing it. So it wasn't easy to get through from that point because they still had the road crash rescue stuff, but all of the hectic stuff was done. Um, but yeah, so so for us, it was hectic until the end. And then, yeah, that, that big exercise, whereas for the other guys, they pretty much knew, you know, if they didn't fuck up real bad, that they'd, yeah. they made it to the end. Awesome. Um, and then you, so you finish the academy and then you go out to your station. Um, and do you know your station prior to departure? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, when I accepted the job, so obviously you go through like the whole, the whole um, recruitment process. And then you get an email saying, congratulations, you've been accepted. Um, your job offer is X. You can either accept or decline it. For me, when I went through, it, you could accept it. And obviously you've got the job. But then if you decline it, that's it. Like you're out. Um, like try again next year. Like So if, if I got sent to you know, some location, sorry, if, if I got offered a job in some location, which I had no interest in going to or couldn't go for family reasons or whatever, then I'll decline it. Then you've got to start the whole thing again. Whereas in recent years they've been accepting people so they've been saying congratulations you've made it through you've made merit more or less and you kind of sit in a pool and we're not entirely sure how it works but then for the next year or two years however long they want to hold you then when there's job like when there's um like a uh, spot on a course for or sorry when there's a spot at a certain station i guess they rank you in that pool so then if you're sitting right at the top you know, you'll get your first preference. So if there was a job on the sunny coast and you're top of the pool, then you would get offered that. But if, you know, you're sitting 20th in pool and you got offered a job in Townsville and you didn't want it, you can say, no, thanks. And they'll go down to the next person, but you stay in that pool. So now it's kind of cool because, you know, it's not it's not so cutthroat. You can stay there until you got a place that, you know, you're happy to take. Yeah. And what's the minimum number of years you have to stay at your station before you can transfer? So in general, it's four years. Um, for compassionate reasons, you can get transfers earlier or if it benefits the organization, you can get transfers earlier. Um, you know, so if say you're in like a really desirable spot, but for whatever reason you wanted to go to a like Townsville 
or or say Mount Isa where they struggle to get people to stay you know if you wanted to go there they'll probably be like yeah man sweet go there and like transfer someone into your spot they're really awesome yeah. yeah cool and so you finish the academy you get to your station you're calling station officers so and that sort of stuff yeah. um and talk us through the first couple of months out on the road yeah so uh it was super exciting obviously had no idea what to expect and i guess it's like with every job your first your first couple of weeks you're just so incredibly keen and all the other workers you know it's just they're used to it so it's nothing special but uh, at the fire station every time we get a job like these tones go off and at the time like when you first start you get so excited when you hear the tones but then like with everything like now a few years in when the tones go off you're like ah. <laughs> everyone's moaning yeah you're like oh shit um but yeah so like it was always super exciting and just all of the little things you thought were super cool like checking all of the equipment on the trucks so obviously part of our job as a firefighter, the primary, uh, our primary responsibility is like responding to incidents, but then obviously you've got all the day-to-day stuff like doing weekly tests, inventory checks, just, you know, testing all of the equipment. And now, you know, it's fine, you know, it's, it's not bad at all, but it's not something you're excited to do. Whereas all of the stuff that I was seeing, cause um, at my station, we got, we got six different trucks. So we got just so much different equipment that I'd never seen and every single day you'd be doing what now I'll consider to be super boring work but at the time you're like man this is crazy can you believe yeah. we're getting paid for this this is awesome yeah um and I mean obviously I know that the police and Amber is like we go out prior to qualifying on like a sort of a placement exercise you do it through uni and the police do it through the academy but you guys don't so the first time you're in a fire truck going to a job it's for real yeah do you remember your first job yeah yeah um so we were going to we were getting responded to a rtc um and where i work there's quite a lot of high-speed roads around and they're not always the like the best quality roads so when you hear like an rtc so a road traffic collision on one of these roads you kind of think ah oh, shit this could be like you know pretty pretty hectic and then we got there oh actually no saying that on the way to the job so it was maybe half an hour and then as soon as we get out the station so obviously everybody puts their gear on before they get jump in the truck which takes 30 seconds but your final thing that you put on is your helmet and um we literally left the station we're half we're half an hour away and i've got my helmet on right from the start <laughs> and they're pretty heavy and my the um, station officer who sits in like the the passenger seat just turned around looked at me and laughed and he goes mate take that off you got half an hour yeah. <laughs> and i just felt like such an idiot but like it's kind of, kind of funny now because i would laugh if i saw a recruit go through and do the same thing 100 percent. well that's what i mean my dad on his first day as a copper he didn't know how to put his belt on with his gun and all that sort of stuff and <laughs> So, I mean, it happens. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you went out to your RTC. And so talk me through you guys. I mean, obviously, we see each other on, on car accidents and that sort of stuff because it's a big multi-agency um, activity. But what's what happens when you guys get there and what's going through your minds and that sort of stuff? Yeah. So um, on, on the truck in general, you have three firefighters and a station officer. So when you were and the station officer is the person that sits in the passenger seat and he's the person that makes all the calls. Um, your role as a, as a firefighter, obviously, is to do whatever your station officer says, but also just be like, run a dynamic risk assessment. Everybody's always, you know, got to be got to be running a dynamic risk assessment because in an environment like at the side of a road, you know, there's so many things that go wrong, you know, traffic and that sort of thing. Um, but to be honest, and especially just coming straight out of recruits, you're religiously just listen to whatever the station officer tells you to do. Um, at RTCs in general, the first thing you want to do is just make the scene safe. So 
that might be depending on what the situation is with the car most most um car crashes we go to are very minor so you don't have to do too much but if if there's any kind of significant um damage or um the car is unstable you want to stabilize the car you know so that might just be as simple as you know putting the handbrake on and put it in a park or if the car might be more damaged it might just be putting cribbing underneath the car you know so you take the weight off of the car and it goes onto our blocks mm-hmm. um and then also like isolating the battery um and then also getting out some sort of fire suppression um so that might just be if it's a minor rtc would always bring out a fire extinguisher but if there's you know if it's bigger and there's like an oil spill or petrol or anything then we're going to get the get the hose out yeah there's a lot of time you guys come out specifically because there's oil on the road bit of sawdust yeah 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 and and that's what we do we just put sawdust on it and and leave it um (laughs) but yeah as as i said the majority the majority of what we do is all kind of like you're there just in case Mm. um you know because think about like i'm sure a lot of people have driven past car crashes before and but the majority of car crashes just like a nose to tail but if somebody calls triple o and says hey there's been a car crash they're all they're going to respond all three agencies always which is obviously for the best because you know you want to be going and then get there and see it's nothing rather than not be there and it'd be something hectic yeah for sure um and talk me through if someone's encapsulated yeah so um obviously the first thing you do is obviously like stabilize the car as i said so before you do any sort of cutting on the car um you will uh yeah stabilize it so that you know they're car doesn't move or you do do more damage potentially um and then normally the station officer will kind of talk to his crew and say hey this is what i'm thinking what do you guys think in terms of tactics to get them out um on every fire truck um we'll have cutters and spreaders and rams which is like hydraulic tools and so kind of what um, people would have heard is the jaws of life so there's a number of different things that you can do to get people out of cars, um, obviously depending on the surroundings, you know, where the car is situated, the amount of damage, and then also the um, like the severity of injuries and stuff. So the term encapsulated tends to mean that the person is relatively okay in the car, like the car isn't impinging on them, but like the door is crushed and we can't open the door to get them out. Um, so normally it would just be something as simple as just use the spreaders. So you put a little bit of protection between the door and the passenger just you know for safekeeping and then use the spreaders just to pop the door yeah yeah um and then i mean then we have the issues where the patient's pinned and that sort of stuff and then there's a bit more conversation between the ambos and the fire is on scene and it sort of comes to a point where it's either we say i need them out now and you guys go hard yeah. or we can go a bit more pro- prolonged and, and go a bit more careful about it um and so if we say to you guys i need them out now and like they're pinned and that sort of stuff how do you go about getting them out yeah so i mean it completely depends on like the damage to the car the type of car as well um but a lot of the time so if if they're encapsulated or if you know their injuries are very minor but we want to like we can get them out nice and slowly you really would be very considerate about you know the most um the different types of cuts that you can make in the car that would be the most efficient for but not like you know putting any vibrations onto the onto the um, casualty or anything like that. But if they're in real bad, like if they're you know doing really bad, you just get in, you get it quick, um, and you kind of not everything's still in a calculated manner. But you just kind of think, what is the fastest way I can get them out, rather yep. than what is the most comfortable way that mm, I can get them for out. sure, exactly. Um, and so we've talked a lot about road crash rescue and that sort of stuff. And then I mean the bread and butter that i mean you guys are called firefighters so fighting fires so obviously can you talk me through a, 
a significant structure fire or anything and and sort of the ins and outs so i mean you're obviously getting information on the way there and then when you arrive what goes through your head and and how does that unfold yeah so um like so obviously on so you get um like turned out from if you're already out of the station you'll get turned out via radio um and if you're um at the station you know doing whatever then the the tones go off and they read out the turnout message to what as to what it is but then you obviously get a lot more information on route um obviously the first thing you want to know is if there's any people um accounted for or not uh, look, sorry if everybody's accounted for or not because obviously um the most important thing is that we get everybody out of the structure so in in firefighting we have something called recio which is basically like a priority of like how we do certain actions so the r for recio stands for rescue so obviously if there's somebody unaccounted for you know that's the first thing you do and you're going to try and you're going to go and make sure that the building's clear basically um and then e is exposures so if there's nobody if there's nobody um in the in the building then the first priority is you're going to be making sure that the house is either side for example i'm going to catch on fire and then c um, is containment so you're going to try and hold that fire say it's in the kitchen or a bedroom you're going to try and ensure that that fire doesn't kind of get out of that um and then after that you are doing um extinguishment of the fire I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> After that, you're looking, you're trying to extinguish the fire and then O is for overhaul, you know, so um, making sure, you know, that the fire, the fire is actually out, you know, dampening down all, all hot spots. Um, but yeah, so en route, you want to know if anybody, if anybody's caught in the, caught in the building because um, that's going to kind of change how you do it. And also if, if the, if the, um, the building's like really going, um, if there's nobody inside it, you kind of, you also look at risk reward, you know, if, if the building's already going to be completely burnt, they're going to have to demolish it anyway. What's the point in risking fires by sending them in and that sort of thing. But, um, so when, when you arrive on scene, first thing you want to do is just see the volume of smoke and see where the smoke's coming from. Um, as soon as you arrive, you're most likely going to start to don your breathing apparatus, um, after the station officer tells you to, but you know, nine times out of 10, if it's a confirmed structure fire, you're putting on BA to make sure you know that you don't breathe in all the smoke and that sort of thing. Um, your station officer is gonna go off and it will do a size up. So basically just do a 360 of the building. So you just get a lay of the land, see like the best entrances, see where the fire is, and also talk to anybody on scene to find out the information, like hard information about if somebody's caught inside or not. Um, and then just under the like under the command of your station officer, you know, he might say, all right, I want you to make access on like the Bravo side. so like the left-hand side of the building, you know, second door down, there's a door, make access with X equipment, um, you know, and I want you to try and contain that fire. And they might tell you like different instructions, like you might be on fire suppression, which strictly means like, you know, go to the fire, try and hold it where it is, or you might be on search and rescue, you know, so if there is someone reported, you might say, all right, make your way to the fire, I want you to do a left-hand search back. Um, but it really is depending on the fire. Um, and then obviously when, when you're inside the fire, Nobody else, like, so your station officer has no idea what's going on. So he's relying on you for, you know, word back as to, you know, where the fire is situated exactly, how hot it is in there, um, you know, like structural integrity. Um, and obviously it's really important for your own safety. Once you actually like go internal, it's really important that you have really good situational awareness because it's so easy, especially when you start to kind of be like moth to a flame and all you can see is the fire. But then after a few years, you kind of like start to... I guess like you're not as amped up when you go in so you can kind of relax you kind of like you don't panic as much um but it's pretty hectic like inside because obviously it could be 600 degrees um in a structure fire and you've got all your protective clothing but it still is bloody hot under mm. that so t talk me through going have you done, obviously had to do this for real 
Yes, yeah, yeah. So we actually, like in terms of structure fires, I reckon we probably average maybe only two a year, like per shift, because we got four shifts at work. So probably only works out that you're actually on shift for two of them per year. Um, and yeah, so depend, depending on depending on the building, you might have to do like a hostile entry. So we've got different tools. We've got something that's called a hooligan tool. Um, you always work in teams of two. So one of you bust the door open with a hooligan tool. Um, and also depending on the fire as well, you might have to bust it open, but then hold it, like keep it closed. And then, you know, enter really strategically um, by like just, you know, checking the air above is, is cool before you, you know, smash open the door and let a load of oxygen in. Um, and yeah, you like, you, you work your way, you, most of the time you use your um, thermal imaging camera to help you locate the fire because it's pitch black inside. Mm. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy experience. It's a crazy experience. And, you know, I can only imagine it feels like, you know, bust, busting the door down and going into a fire. I can only imagine it feel like running out of a tunnel at a footy game. Like, you know, you're just like super amped up. Um, and you, you work, you work your way through your building with your, with, the, with your partner um you know cool, cooling overhead and you know making sure it's safe before you go in and yeah yeah and so you were telling me about a fire that you went to that you went in and the roof was collapsing a bit and then you came out and that's when the the ambos and the fire is made up again is after some breathing apparatus activity then you get checked by us sometimes yes Cinetech, tell us about that job when you arrived when you went in and then coming out yeah, yeah so it was actually um it was actually one of my um, one of my first fires and um obviously like there's quite a lot going on it's pretty hectic um so we went down like the left hand side of the building and the first door um the first door was like it was like a pretty heavy duty door and then i saw there was a door like a little bit further down that was just like a real lightweight one and i forgot i forgot my hooligan tool because like one of the you know you got a million things in your mind you're kind of panicking i've got my hooligan tool and i was like oh shit and i could have gone back and got it but you know it'd have been another two minutes and i just thought oh, i'll give this a go because i've seen it in the movies and i took a step back and then just like kicked the door down <laughs> and i was just like wow that felt so cool i am massive yeah yeah it was so sick and then we went down the down the hallway like kind of like just cooling overhead as we went down and then the fire so we went down the hallway and then turned left and the fire was, I think it would have been in the kitchen, like down down to the left. So we're kind of like working our way down. So you kind of work strategically, like, you know, like put like a, just cooling cooling the atmosphere above you because that, for a number of reasons, you know, that thing um, makes the structural integrity like above you, you know, it's going to hopefully cool it down above you. So it's not going to get too bad overhead to reduce like structural collapse and stuff. Um, but anyway, so we're going down and then the ceiling does start coming down on us because if, like, it'd been, it'd been hot for a long time. So, you know, it's just started, just started to lose its strength. So like we started getting like, um, you know, the ceiling coming down. It was like nothing too crazy, but we end up like, you know, running out because it was like just too dangerous. And the whole house was pretty much gone at this point. There was nobody inside. So it's kind of like, if it's, if it's too dangerous, what's the point in being in there? Um, so we've run out, we got the ceiling coming down and I was get out we go and um like book back in with our ba entry officer and then i set my station officer is uh or it's pretty much standard practice after you go and turn like a structure fire that you go and get checked out by qas um so my station officer like, all right boys go get checked out by qas um and it's funny because i was listening to your friends um i was listening to your podcast with your friend simon um, which i think was your second podcast and he was talking about his first job as a qas was um was checking fires out after a structure fire and he was like oh and they just don't, don't want to have anything to do with you <laughs> so it, so nobody really wants to get checked out because you're like oh i'm fine i just want to go back in because like what happens is you get checked out you know you recommission your gear and you go back in um so anyway so like my first fire 
or like one of my first fires super amped up super hot inside like just been running around the building started coming down as we <laughs> ran out of the building and i think it must have been like somebody who's relatively fresh out of the um qas academy and they'd like check check my vitals and like whoa your heart rate's really high and your your blood pressure's high and you you feel hot and i'm like yeah no shit <laughs> you just you just saw me come out of a building that was on fire i'm a little bit stressed <laughs> <laughs> so that trying to drag you off the hospital yeah 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 but she was like she was i mean she was really nice but she was like genuinely worried i'm like i'm fine i'm just a bit just a little bit frazzled at the moment like. <laughs> that happens um and so what's it like obviously you're in smoke-filled rooms and that sort of stuff i've been told that you hug the wall and you you pat it on the way through talk me through that yeah so so you'd always so um your officer will most likely give you like a like left hand search or something on right hand search so you'll sit against that side of the wall and you'll use your shoulder against that um you also so you would use that to kind of navigate your way around the building because if you always kind of like stay on the left you know you're not going to start to get disorientated and go in circles um you've also got like your thermal imaging camera which is which is amazing it's just like in the completely dot like dark smoke-filled room you can't see anything you can't see your hand in front of your face um but with a thermal imaging camera it's amazing it's like you can you can like see you can see everything and it's so it'll just be a screen maybe the size of your iphone um but and you have one of those per team so you can't do you obviously have search patterns and stuff and you know you're sweeping your leg and you're sweeping with your arms along the floor but having a thermal imaging camera like you can see the other side of the room in pitch blackness um when pitch darkness is it's really really cool yeah that is cool um, and so we've talked about fighting fires and that sort of stuff. And then you have been, I mean, we re-saw each other back at the academy when you were doing some vertical rescue Yeah, that's training. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a funny story from this, from my perspective is you were, this is like, this is advanced rope stuff yeah. because I mean, you get trained in a basic level of it um, and then you upskilled and we'll talk about a bit more about your career progression in a sec. But I had just started back with the ambulance service in Australia and we obviously share the same facility and they were taking us through like we, we do lessons. So mm-hmm. you go to the academy for the month and you sort of learn the ins and outs of the, the equipment again and that sort of stuff. And they were taking us through the, the core pulse or the monitor that we use that checks your blood pressure and that sort of stuff. And these classes are predominantly graduates and so new grads that have never been out on the road and they also have a few qualifieds like myself that were in there and we were doing this lesson and he was taking us through the call pole something that i've been through a million times and not that i was fobbing it off but i saw you guys rappelling off this building and i was trying to work out if it was you or not and then the guy that was teaching lesson was like nick are you listening i was like yeah i guess sorry but the thing is is that when they run interviews apparently they do it in that room and they have the interviewee facing the fire. He's doing the repelling to try and distract him. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, talk us through some repelling stuff. Yeah, man. So when when would that have been? Would that have been like a year and a half, like two Nearly years ago? Nearly two years ago. Yeah, okay. So um, in, in the fire service, so as I said, at the academy, so in that final eight weeks, you do your road crash rescue stuff, you do the, the fire stuff, but then you also do like technical rescue disciplines. So you've got swift water rescue, you've got um, vert rescue, so vertical rescue, you've got trench confined space, and then you also have urban search and rescue. So every single firefighter that comes out of the academy is what's called a level one um, tech rescue operator. 
Um, from that point onwards, depending on where you are, they have um, they also they also require level two operators. So a level one operator for vert rescue, from for example, means that you can get on rope and you can and you can abseil, you can abseil down. Whereas a level two, but it's kind of like very very basic. So very basic rescues you would be able to do by yourself. But then you have the opportunity to also train up as a level two operator. Um, for tech rescue so for um, vertical rescue so that's like one of my favorite things that i do um, you just learn like kind of advanced anchor systems you use different um, pieces of equipment um, you learn how to kind of like use high points and set up high points which is kind of important for um, certain like um, for certain um, different types of rescue so if you're on, if you're going over a cliff you might want to set up like an artificial high point or use a cliff just to make the edge transition easier um, and then if there is a vertical rescue job anywhere around Queensland, they would respond the closest level ones or the, the closest truck, basically. But then they'd also always try and get level two people there um, just for if there's any sort of complexities in the job. It's just always good to have kind of like a more experienced person. Um, but so to become a level two operator, you have to do like a three week vert rescue course. And that's something that, that I really, really enjoy. Um, and then from from then I've also um, I've also done what's called mountain rescue operator, which is for the Glasshouse Mountains predominantly, and that's using different gear again. Um, and in the fire service now, so we've always used thirteen mil um, rope, thirteen mil life rescue line. Um, and anybody that knows anything about climbing, thirteen mil is like so overkill. They don't use thirteen <laughs> mil anywhere. Um, it's really expensive. They don't make many friction devices for it. Um, and they're actually, the friction device we were using in QFest is called the No Worries. Um, and they're actually not manufacturing that anymore. So that's kind of forced forced their hand in transitioning to some uh, like smaller life rescue line, which is like national, which is international standard, like, you know, in Canada and America. So we're using 11 mil now, whereas I think in Europe they're using 9 mil in some places. So 11 mil still has got like a huge safety margin and stuff. But so we're transitioning the whole organization across to 11 mil, which also means like new equipment that comes with that. So I've also done a training course to allow me to be an 11 mil trainer. So now I'm like, help, like you know, helping the transition, training up other fireys and how to do the um, 11 mil stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, and how's that training? So do you get to travel through Queensland, that sort of stuff? Recently, I've just just been doing it here, like around where I'm stationed. Um, in QFest, they are transitioning, I think by the end of this financial year. So by July, I think southeast Brisbane and north coast region will be fully transitioned to the 11 mil and then next financial year they're going to start to do the rest of the region so up north and inland um, I imagine when they start to transition up north and inland they'll you know send emails out to see who's keen to you know go go for a few weeks to Cairns and do that sort of thing but I'll be super keen to do it and you know mixes up mixes up the different the work that you do and it's just interesting i like it so. yeah right it's good to see that uh qfs operate on the same principle that the southeast corner gets everything first and then it, yeah so then it rolls out to yeah. the rest of queensland southeast brisbane sunny coast to a certain extent and then yes yeah, slow slowly everywhere else gets the hand-me-downs yeah yeah exactly um and so so we've talked a bit about vet rescue and a lot of stuff that you guys do um the day-to-day and you said you got a different few different sort of trucks at mm-hmm. your station so I mean, what are the different appliances that you have and, and what sort of shifts do you do and that yep. sort of stuff? Yeah. So first of all, I'll just, um, I'll talk about the three different types of firefighters you've got. So you've got the permanent, um, so the full-time guys. So we work on like a 1014 roster. So 1014 means um, 
two 10-hour days, then two 14-hour nights, and then we have four days off. Um, then the second type of firefighter you've got is what's called an auxiliary firefighter. So auxiliary firefighters, they're just on call, so they're the guys that have the pages. And auxiliary firefighters would be in a number of locations. They probably, I would imagine, would outnumber full-time firefighters, actually. So if a area, for example, Brisbane, has obviously got a big population, so it warrants having full-time fire, like full-time fire stations, you know, every 15 kilometres or something like that. Whereas when you start to go out t- towards more kind of rural Queensland, the population doesn't deem it necessary or you know it it doesn't work to have full-time firefighters there just i guess um like just the money that would cost and that sort of thing so that's when you'd have the auxiliary guys so the auxiliary guys they still get a lot of training not quite as much as the full-time guys and it's a lot of it's kind of like learn on the job and slowly kind of start to progress um but yeah so they'll be in your more kind of starting to get more rural areas and then you've got the rural fire brigade which is the volunteers um and they're absolutely absolutely fantastic like queensland would you know, be in so much trouble if they didn't have them. So they would have rural rural brigades everywhere. So including in a place like Brisbane, but then definitely in the rural areas, obviously. Um, and they kind of tend to respond to like grass fires, just grass fires in general. So during the summer um, and bushfire season, you know, they have, it's crazy. They have full-time jobs, families, but then they'll also use annual leave and take leave off in their own time to an unpaid leave to go and work in the rurals yeah and so question about bushfires and that sort of stuff who's jurisdiction because i mean you don't you often see the rural fireys doing it mm. do you guys get trained do you guys go how does that work yeah so we definitely have um like the same amount of trip well we have would have like more bushfire fire training um it kind of depends in general so say say for example where i'm stationed if there is a bushfire that is within a certain it, within our response area then we would be responding to it immediately um, and then they would also respond rural appliances if it got to the point where um, you know there was, it was deemed there was no structures um, at threat and you know there was a there was enough rural rural units to kind of contain it the um, full-time guys or potentially the auxiliary guys depending where you are would be turned around and sent back to the station because obviously even if there's a bushfire just outside of town there's still going to be there's still potentially going to be house fires and car crash and that sort of thing within within your response area so as long as it's kind of being taken care of the rural guys might take care of it by themselves if there's ever any structures threatened there'll be either permanent or part-time guys there in the red trucks so the main difference in identifying them is permanents and auxiliaries are in red trucks and the rurals are in yellows um but yeah per- and especially if there's like a big a big bushfire event there'll be there'll be a heap of red trucks there um as well as the volunteers um yeah. but it's kind of, it's kind of like bush firefighting is their kind of like ballpark mm-hmm. but you know there's a lot of variables um, and it's kind of just it's handy if you've got the spare if you've got spare permanents around then you would definitely want the permanents there as well for sure got it um, and then the different sort of fire trucks that the permanent guys have yep so um, at, at my um, station for example so we have what's called like an alpha appliance which is like a which is a, a pump so what you use down at the academy so it's got like the 1500 liters of water on it um, but then you've also got all the hydraulic gear, the different hoses. It's basically your, your generic fire truck that they'll have at most fire stations. They'll have an alpha appliance. We also have a Bravo appliance, which is the same thing as the alpha appliance, but just a second version of it. So each each pump, obviously, or sorry, each truck at a station has to have um, a different a different letter to identify it. So you would say, for example, like at one, I don't even know what station 
536 in Brisbane would be. But, you know, say you have 536 Alpha and then 536 Bravo just for different cool signs on the radios. Gotcha. Um, and then we've also got, at my station, we've got a Lima, which is a heavy rescue and technical rescue truck. So I ride that one quite a bit because I've got like a bit of technical rescue experience. So you've got heaps of extra life rescue lines so like the ropes for vert rescue um we've got like an inflatable boat on it um then we've got the heavy rescue stuff so you've got like the really big hydraulic gear so like just extra big jaws of life and loads of different variations of the hydraulic gear for potentially um you know any any situation that you might encounter um then we have a echo appliance which is like a bush firefighting appliance so it's a little bit smaller than the alpha it doesn't have any of the rescue gear on it um but it's got four wheel drive so you know it can go off road and do a bit of that kind of stuff um we have a yankee appliance which again is a small it's like a single cab nissan patrol with a small pump on the back so that's for bush firefighting as well we've got a motorized boat which you know we can take with take with a ute somewhere if there's flooding events and that sort of thing and then at my station as well we've also got a delta appliance which is the same thing as the Alpha and Bravo, but D for Delta is like the it's like the area spare. Um, but yeah, it's like Delta is just like a another another word for an Alpha. There's a whole matrix. It would always be you know the Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta is a pumper. Lima is always always a technical rescue. Echo is always like bush firefighter. Yankee's always bush firefighting. So like you could have the same the exact same truck. So if you had like a 536 Alpha and a 512 Alpha they're going to be a very similar truck there might be a slightly different different generation but it's going to be the same type of like perform the same type of function yeah cool um and in terms of the sort of day-to-day jobs you you get there and do your equipment checks and you sort of have a briefing with the boss yeah so for our day shifts so it starts at eight o'clock so everyone kind of gets there at my station everyone gets there about seven forty-five. um you got your off going shift and your oncoming shift so that'll be we got six on each. We got six on each shift. Um, so you just kind of sit around the the um, breakfast table and just shoot and shit, have a coffee. Um, the station officers will go into the duty office at eight o'clock, and um, they'll have a look on what we call OMS, which is basically our operating system, and see what we've got scheduled for the day. They'll come back out about five past eight and kind of brief us on what we're doing for the morning. Um, ask if anybody's got any particular training they want to do. Um, for example, if, if I was going on, so I'm going on a, on a swift water training course to be a swift water level two in March. Mm-hmm. So I'll say, hey, is there anyone, is anyone wanting to work on anything? So I'll be like, hey guys, can I organize like a little like training um, scenario for us for, you know, this afternoon and do this. You know, so everyone's on the same page. Everyone knows what we're doing. Um, most of the time we'll do our like our truck checks before Smoko at 10. So between like eight and 10, we might have to do we might have to do um, inventory on the alpha appliance and weekly tests which is basically just like operating all the tools making sure they work you might have to do you know some small kind of like maintenance to you know various different things but most time it's just doing checks on it and just recording that um and then on top of that as well you've also got like fire eds that you have to do so we try and get to every single grade one school in the area once a year to talk about fire safety you know the stop drop stop drop and go like um once if there's a, if there's a house fire you know and you get out of the house you're going to go back in for your pets no you're not blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. gotcha um which is always really fun like i really enjoy that that part of it uh we've also we also do like building inspections so all, all restaurants up to like so like basically cert, certain businesses have to have inspections and we check that all of their fire safety measures have been maintained they're stored correctly and um, they've done all their staff training so that's that's called mirs so we do that it's kind of kind of boring but 
that's what we do um and then obviously respond respond to any incidents um if we're out an mir or a fire ed and then we get a call over the radio then we'll drop what we're doing and go to whatever that is and then hopefully try and resume that afterwards um and then on my shift we try to make sure everything's kind of done by four o'clock um obviously we finished at six o'clock um so we try and get everything out of, out of the road by four o'clock and then you can hit the gym we've got a pretty good gym in the station yeah or just kind of relax or do a little bit of your own personal development uh, yeah yeah sick and what would be the top three jobs that you guys would get turned out for top three jobs um i would say number one would be car crashes but i'd say 90 percent of car crashes that we go to uh you know nose to tail so you get there you make sure everyone's okay you make sure the scene's safe you you'll isolate the battery um you'll put some airbag tape on the window which just lets anybody know that um, anybody that's you know dealing with cars that you know there's undeployed airbags that could potentially go off mm-hmm. um and then we'll wait for the car to get put on a tow truck then leave um five maybe five percent of car crashes that we go to are like you know you have to maybe pop a door or you know take a door off to help qs get them out of the car but mo- like quite minor and then maybe like five percent of the car crashes we go to are pretty hectic where you know somebody's somebody's had some major trauma and you know it's kind of like all hands on deck type thing um then probably alarms. So we we get responded to like say fire. Let's say there's a um, smoke detector's gone off at a hospital. Um, that's hospital or a nursing home, um, or like certain different venues like that. They're considered high risk. If say someone burns toast in the kitchen, then a smoke alarm goes off. Then we'll get responded to that immediately. Um, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's it's nothing, or it's a fa- it's a faulty um, faulty sensor, or it's nothing. Um, but obviously. It's kind of hard going to those because you you go to an alarm at the hospital because we go to them all the time and you think oh you know it's just it's nothing but obviously you kind of want to still it's it's hard not to get um i don't can't, can't think the word is it's probably complacent. complacent complacent yeah that's what i was looking for because you go in there and you think you know it's you know it's going to be nothing but you still got to kind of be on the ball for if it is something for that you know because if if something it does go hectically wrong there then you know there's it's super high risk there's loads of people who are you know, you're going to have to do a big evacuation in the building, a load of people who can't, you know, who might be bedridden and that sort of thing. And so you yeah, have to the, stay on the ball. The consequences there are massive. And is it true, like, in, in metro built-up areas, like, the volume of automatic fire alarms is massive and yeah. some of the guys there are just out all night because it's just fire alarm, fire alarm, fire yeah. alarm? Yeah, I, I don't work um, in, in Brisbane very often, but um, you, hear, you hear horror stories of people, you know, having, like, 16 alarms, like, in a night. <laughs> and... Um, yeah it's Jeez, a, out all night and i wonder what that must be like oh yeah yeah oh it's the worst you get two hours sleep and you're open <laughs> in the morning um and then third most so it's car crashes alarms maybe like um getting called for like backyard burns so people somebody who might be might be burning rubbish in their in their backyard or just have a fire which has got like you know is too big or it's just smoke which is bothering the neighbors and just basically like neighbor, neighborhood disputes um, and sometimes, you know, if somebody's, you know, having a barbie or like, you know, it's got like a little bonfire and like a contained um, unit in their yard, that's absolutely fine. But it's just, you know, like the neighbours, they might not like each other. So they're trying to get them in trouble. And yeah, but so it's, it's a nothing job, but probably backyard burns is what we get called to as well. Yeah. And two things that I like getting you guys out for is one, to gain entry for me. Yeah. If uh, I can't get into a house and it's often, it happens so often where it's just a welfare check 
and we go there and then no one answers the door and all the doors are locked and we have to kick the door in or mm. take a window off or something to verify that the patient is safe and nine times out of ten we go in there and no one's in there yeah. and but kick their door down. Dude, we we had one the other day and um, it was like an old lady that no one had heard from in, you know, days. So um, we get like called by QAS to come and assist them because they think, you know, she might be unwell inside or potentially passed away. And then, so like we do the normal thing, like whenever we whenever we go to a house to you know to make entry, we always kind of walk around and try and find a spare key just in case so we don't do any damage to the house. And we're like, we, then we're like, oh, right, we can't find anything. And QS, like, oh, we need that door down right now. <laughs> so then we bust the door down, and we're like, all right, well, we'll get out of it. Then you know, her job's done. And then as we're walking off, the old lady walks back with her two bags of shopping, <laughs> and she's like, what have you guys done to my house? And, it was, and the QAS person was like, oh. Literally, the other night, I was, I mean, this was a couple of months ago now, but it was like 2 a.m. on a night shift, and I know you guys like your sleep on night shift, but we had, again, a welfare check, and we knocked on the front door, knocked on the back door, and they'd given us a key safe code to get in to the back door, and I got that, put the key in, but it was one of these old-style doors where the, there was a key in the other side of the door, so then I couldn't mm. get my key in. And I was yelling out and there were some windows open and stuff, but no one came and we were pretty sure that the person was inside. So I was like, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to do it. Get the fireys out here. And so then, and you can hear like it's dead quiet at night and you can hear the fire truck from like three streets away yeah. <laughs> rumbling up and then gets out and all these bleary eyed fireys start spilling out of the car and what's going on. Yeah, we need to get access. There's some windows open, probably could just get in with a ladder. So then they've gone up the stairs probably just to check that the door's not open because oh, who knows, probably we missed it. But as one of the fires has gone up the stairs, the internal lights come on. <laughs> <laughs> and I've gone, I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, can I get out of here? Um, so there's that. And then often uh, I like to get you guys out again for lift assists and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, which probably is the bane of your existence. Oh, but yeah. Well, I am, um, as, as, as we start talking about, um, you know, QAS assists, I realise that we probably actually, the third most thing that we go to is like lift assists, um, just through people, you know, living unhealthy lifestyles. And then you might only have two paramedics and you guys are obviously so busy that you struggle to get extra paramedics out just because, you know, there's so many jobs for QAS. So you get us to come help move like a large person from their house um but yeah and i i genuinely don't mind it some of the older fireys like hate it when we get qas assist because like oh this isn't our job but the way i look at it you know it's all it's all taxpayer money um and that's the thing for me is that i mean there's no real emphasis on physical fitness in the ambos mm -hmm. um and i think that's probably not the best thing because there's so many paramedics that go off with back injuries, with shoulder injuries, from lifting patients. And at the end of the day, sometimes we do have to do it. And they give us tools to get them off the floor. We've got this chair called the razor chair. It sounds sick, but um, <laughs> it's really for getting old grandma off the floor in a nice way. And it works really well. Um, but I mean, that's only rated to 150 kilos. And yeah. as you and I both know, there's people out there that weigh over 150 kilos. Um, and sometimes it's in a really high pressure situation where we need to get them out we need to do something and there's no emphasis on physical training so there's paramedics out there that aren't fit and we do 12 hour days and you try and rest on your day off and we're out all day so sometimes you can't get the best meals in that sort of stuff so um it really is 
detrimental to the paramedics. I think that there's no sort of emphasis on physical training and that sort of stuff. Um, but I mean, that's where you guys come in for us at times. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me and for other paramedics as well is I like to have a plan when you guys rock up. Mm. So I'll wait for you guys. I'll come out and I'll say to the station officer, this is what we have, this is what I need, and this is what I get need you guys to do. And it always seems to flow really well and the fire seem to like it because they just go where I tell them to go and no one's thinking too hard and it's just, righto, get them out, in the stretcher, cool, see you later. Yeah. Yeah, I um, that like definitely it's it's handy when you've got like a, a QAS, um, somebody who works for QAS who is mindful of, you know, what's going to be the easiest way to do things rather than kind of like, We'll, we'll be like alright we're going to do this way and then halfway they're like oh actually I don't like the way that you're doing that and just, I remember one time um, we went to a job and it was like a um, CPR assist and like we got him back and then we got him on a stretcher and we're like we need it so it's on like the second story of like budget accommodation so it was like it was pretty gross and um, like the staircase to get him down was like incredibly skinny and obviously he's got all of this like gear attached to him and that sort of thing but it was like only it was like so skinny that we could only have like one person like it was like a single person kind of on each end of the stretcher and um and he was like a rel- relatively small guy so just keep the stretcher level so i've got him as i'm going down the stairs i've got him, like my arms fully extended above my head so like just like overhead press of how much this guy weighs <laughs> and we're halfway down the stairs and one and the qas guy goes hey stop no um this isn't oh, what i just need to um actually change one of these things on one of the settings on like i don't know whatever piece of equipment he had and i'm like nope no nope, we can't <laughs> stop we can't as i've got this guy like fully above my head and stuff like that it's so annoying because any person that looked at it like could see that i was not comfortable you know like and I mean, you're a big guy, but you're not that big, hey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just standing with someone overhead for life. I have a similar story in the UK. It was exactly the same. We're coming down a skinny staircase and they were on a flat, rigid board. And it was an elderly female patient. And I think she was unconscious or something. But I've lifted above my head um, as we're coming down because there's literally no other option. Um, but my view was directly up her night. Yeah. dress where she was not wearing any underwear they never are and it, was, they never uh, are. it wasn't the best um spot to be but you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes yeah it's um it's you know like from the outside being a firefighter seems like quite like kind of like a glamorous job but yeah then you then you have like a qas assist and they're always always seem to be naked um, naked incontinent it's awesome yeah. and that's why we get you guys just to help yeah. us out. well we, we had this um we had this like one one lady that we would see regularly for like QSS because she'd have to she was in and out of hospital because she was um so big that she had like a lot of um like health conditions, and obviously you can't keep her leaving in hospital because that's you know a huge expense. Um, so she's in and out of hospital and would always every single time she needed to get transported to hospital would always have to go and help her. Um, one time she like got out she had like a I guess like a, a Zimmer frame to help her kind of like get between her bed in the bathroom. And um, she she jumped up, and um, you know, well, I'd say jump. That's probably an exaggeration. She she got <laughs> up to like go to the bathroom in the in the middle of the night, and then kind of fell, and her bed was against the wall. But so she kind of fell in the corner of like her bed frame in the wall, and um, so we get there, and we like to get better access to her. Like so, she needed to go to hospital because she'd like hurt herself when she fell. She was okay. She was just sitting there and couldn't get back up and like in a little bit of pain. Um, so we lift the bed frame up to get it out of the way, um, just some like better access for her. And there was like all like flipping like chocolate wrappers and stuff like under the bed. <laughs> um, and you guys have this in QAS, you guys have this kind of like, it's like a inflatable 
mattress type thing and it inflates in stages. I'm not sure what it's called. Yeah, it's I can't remember if it's called the camel here or the camel in the UK, but yeah, it's this inflatable pillow that just has like five pillows and then one pillow just inflates yeah. at a time. So obviously to get them back, so we need to get get her up to then transfer across to um, the ambulance um, bed. Well, yeah, the stretcher. The stretcher. Yeah, yeah sorry, the stretcher. Um, so we're inflating this thing one like one at a time, and she keeps on going, "I'm slipping, I'm slipping," and everyone's like, and she, she was like, obviously, she, it was very uncomfortable for her. So like, you know, it would have it wouldn't have been a nice feeling for her, but she kept on going, "I'm slipping, I'm slipping," and we're like. You're not. You're 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 fine. You're not. And then this one time she goes, "I'm slipping. I'm slipping." Everyone's like, "No, you're not." And I'm like, "Actually, guys, she has slipped a little bit. She's pinned me up against the wall, <laughs> so I'm sandwiched up against the wall." And then she's like, uh, "She was like, I need the toilet." I was like, "You're gonna have to wait." As I'm <laughs> as I'm sandwiched, and, and, and like everyone was like, "Oh, you're right." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Just get her back down. We'll you know go again." And she's like, "I need the toilet." I'm like, "You're gonna have to wait." And she goes well, if there's a flash flood, don't say I didn't warn you. And I just thought in my head, I was just like, I'm calm now, but if you piss on me, I'm going to lose my shit. And luck- luckily she didn't, and we got across the toilet and then put her on the stretcher. Um, but yeah, it was a, one of the not so glamorous ones. But And, and we, we see this lady like semi-regularly, and the worst thing is like you, you know their address because you go there so often, so you get woken up at three o'clock in the morning and you know, turn out to medical assist at like such and such, and you're like, oh fuck. <laughs> but in term, like so, what you were saying earlier about um, QAS, like wake, waking up the fire is. So um, I've had it a few times. Like most of the time, like QAS is super, you know, super cool. And they're like, oh, thanks so much for coming, guys. Blah, blah, blah. I've had like I've had a couple of people say to me, "Oh, well, we were up all night, so I thought we might as well wake you up." And I thought, like, man, I was I was more than happy to come here, but like enough of the smart ass. Yeah, now I'm pissed off. Yeah, now now, I don't want to be. Now, yeah. now I'm pissed off. But like, I know how tough you guys have it, and depending on the station you're at, being a fiery, like you do have it pretty good on night shifts. You know, you do all you do all of your work. So like on the, what your night shift looks like is you kind of rock up to work at six o'clock. Same thing. You might have a cup of tea at changeover. Just talk shit with the boys at changeover. On night shifts in general, they're a little bit more chill. You would do the, the basic truck checks just to make sure everything's working. You might do some what's called core skills, which is just stuff that rolls around every month. You've got to do X amount of just going over like different types, different aspects of firefighting and stuff. A lot of it's theory. And then you might do a little bit of personal training and then basically from nine o'clock, the time's yours. So whether that's like if you want to do your own personal study or if you want to watch TV and then basically from 10 o'clock onwards, people start going to sleep. You've got your own bedrooms at each fire station. Um, and then obviously if there's an emergency, the tones go off and it's incredibly loud and like all the lights turn on so you get woken up and, and you go to the job. Um, but yeah, depending on what station you're at, you can actually end up having like a decent amount of sleep like some nights, which is which is definitely a huge bonus of the job. Yeah, and I mean, there is some animosity between the fireys and uh, I think the coppers and the ambos seem to join uh, gang up on you guys a little bit. But to be honest, I reckon that's probably just out of jealousy. Oh, it is. And I'll cop it, you know. I definitely will cop a bit of banter for, um, for you know, for getting eight hours sleep every now and then it works. And I mean, at the end of the day, we all chose to do our jobs and if you want to be a fiery, just join the fireys, hey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I mean, I think that all three emergency services are excellent careers, but I would tend to admit that, I mean, you, you talk to coppers and you talk to ambos and they do get jaded at the end of your career sometimes. But 
to this day, I still haven't met a fiery that rocks up to work that doesn't want to be there or is pissed off about mm. their career choice. I think um, I think you haven't hung out with enough fireys because <laughs> that's I, I kind of feel like to be honest, whatever the job is, whether you're a, whether you're a copper ambo fiery or you're a chippy, if you've been doing it for long enough, then you, then you get jaded enough. I um I heard this one saying when I first got in the job, and it's so true. Um, fireys hate two things: the way things are and change. And uh, to this day, there's never I've never heard anything more truthful because people will be sitting around, would be doing our weekly checks, and people will be saying, "Oh, it's crazy that we have to do this." Blah 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 blah. blah. And then literally the next week, I've had it. I've had it where it's literally the next week, for whatever reason, they've changed it to what they wanted, and then we're doing it the next week, and they're saying, "This is fucked. What are we doing <laughs> like this?" And it's like, mate, you literally said that last week that you didn't want to do it like that anymore. And I think like I had a year off from on the road when I came back from the UK, and I had a year, and I like. I hated it. I was out in the mines and I was looking at everyone, like seeing ambulances go past and all that sort of stuff. And like, I was so jealous and it was like having my dream career and then having it taken away almost, having that year off. And I think you you can get like stuck in the vortex of being like, oh, this sucks, this is shit. But at the end of the day, I think we do have one of the best jobs in the world. Like you rock up, get to hang out with your mates um, and if you've got a good crewmate in an Ambo or a copper, like you're in the car for eight to 12 hours mm. a day cruising around and it couldn't, doesn't matter what job we go to. We just talk shit the whole time, grab a few coffees, talk to a few people. And like, uh, I just don't think that you, it's very easy to just forget how good it is sometimes. Yeah. yeah I would say, um, definitely in the fireys, they, they forget how good we've got it. Um, in the fireys in general, I think it's. I don't know what the exact stat is, but I think it's like 98% of people who get in the fiery stay, stay in it until retirement, mm. um, which I think speaks volumes to how good the job is. But I think that you can definitely see with people that have been in kind of like 30, 35 years, they kind of forget what like a proper job's, or not proper job, because, you know, obviously every job's got its um, pros and cons, um, but they kind of forget forget how good like being a fire is sometimes because like I love it. And obviously I'm relatively fresh um, and I really love it, so I'm biased. But um, I do think as far as jobs go, it's, it's pretty pretty bloody awesome. Unreal. And so we'll talk a little bit more about, so you said you're level two swift water. Where is that? So I'm just, I've just got onto my like level two swift water course. So that is in March. So I think beginning of March to mid-March. Um, it's a two-week course up in Tully. Um, and so from what I understand... So it's basically you go to it's kind of like a almost like a white water rafting type of place, and you learn how to swim, kind of swim through. You basically learn how to navigate in um, like moving water, and you got like all eddies and and that sort of thing, um, and like you know just just learn how learn the safest way to kind of maneuver through water to get to casualties. Um, we also have like boats, so these particular boats are called IWPs, which is an inflatable work platform, which is the, mo- <laughs> the most boring name for, for, a, for a little boat ever. But you're also, you also learn how to utilize like those boats to get through. So basically white water rafting in the boats. Yeah. Kind of like surf rescue, RIB, rubber yeah. inflatable boat. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Cause they, cause they're not allowed to have a fun name because it's <laughs> yeah. a work thing. Um, but then on the swift water course, obviously there's going to be a lot of swimming through it. You learn how to navigate with your boats. Um, and then you also, from what I understand, set up kind of like rope systems like across the river to, you know, help, you know, move the boat in a controlled fashion to kind of get them down to a certain area and then bring them back up and back into shore. Um, and so normally the way it works with tech rescue, you always have to do swift water before you do vert rescue. Um, but for whatever reason, just the way that the regions worked, 
there wasn't a spot for me on swift water a couple of years ago when i did vert so i did vert first and then i've done the extension of vert which is mountain rescue and now i'm going to swift water so i'm hoping that all of the kind of like the rope systems that we do in swift water i'm hoping that'll be easier for me to pick up you know because i've already done the next couple of stages of all the rope rigging and stuff yeah okay so how did you do any swift water at the academy and that sort of stuff so at the academy you do as i said everyone does like level one um the swift water at the academy is is very basic i'm not sure how they do it nowadays but for us it was um they've got they've kind of got like a little um dam almost that they set up for you to do um what's called case four for your pumping so basically sucking water out of a pool or a dam so in the same place that we do the case four pumping that's where we also do our swift water so it's just still water it'll be you know a couple foot deep um, and you kind of jump in, you learn the terminology of like swift water and you learn how to do a throw bag, which is, you know, if there was somebody in the water, you know, somebody coming down a river towards you and you're on the side of the um, river, you throw what's called a throw bag to basically hopefully get them and kind of fish them back in. But that's more or less the extent of the swift water that you do at the academy. So it'll be, it'll definitely be a big, big step up going to level two, but right. something, something that I'm really, really excited to, uh, to do. Yeah, so. it sounds awesome. I mean, Tully is a big spot for... I mean, the army do their their jungle warfare stuff there, and one of the boys that I have on in a, in a couple episodes time, he has some hectic stories about how how muddy and dark it can get out there. Yeah, th- thank God, but I don't think we'll be doing any nighttime stuff, <laughs> and hopefully be staying out of the mud. And just how the humid it is up there too. Yeah, and o- obviously we've got um, the cyclone moving through there at the moment. Um, so I'll be, I'll be interested to see how much water there is kind of like going through the, like when, when I get there in, in a few weeks time, I don't know if it will affect it having so much rain so, so far out, but yeah, yeah, for sure. And the final two things that we'll touch on is uh, some career progression as fiery. And then I know you love talking about it, but some extracurricular activities that you get to participate in. So we'll talk about the career progression first. So, um, yeah. So in terms of career progression, so you start at the academy um, you're there for four months and you're what's called a recruit. As soon as you graduate from the academy, um, then you're like a like you're actually a firefighter. So you come out of the academy, you're a fourth class, which um, so on your epaulets on your shoulders, which displays your rank, you've just got a plain black epaulet with fire and rescue. Um, that first the first three years, um, you have to do assignments, um, and the assignments there'll be X amount of assignments per year, and then at the end of the year, you've got what's called a grade to grade, and your grade to grade is kind of like your final test to get to the next rank. So that's kind of just like giving presentations on different pieces of equipment and then some relatively basic um, like practical um, tests as well. So at the end of your first year, you become what's called a third class. So you get one stripe on your shoulder um, and then you do all of your second year assignments and then your second year grade to grade, which is a bit of a step up, which then you get to a second class, which means you've got two stripes. Then at the end of your third year, you become a first class. So once you've, you know, all of your assignments and stuff been marked off, You've had three years on the truck, so you've got three years experience, and so then you're a first-class firefighter, so you've got three stripes. So it's almost like the first three years is like an apprenticeship. So you've yeah. got you've got certain benchmarks that you've got to hit, and it's not like if you don't hit them, you're going to be let go. But if you don't hit them, you know you'll be put on training plans and that sort of thing, you know, mm. to to get you up to where you need to be. Um, and then after that three years, that's as far as you have to go as a fiery. So you can stay a first-class firefighter forever. Um, so the first class firefighter means that, you know, you can ride in any of the different firefighting positions on the truck. So that's either your driver, um, or the two firefighters in the back. Um, the next career progression from that is what's called your senior firefighters. 
So on the truck, so I said you've got the three firefighter positions. You've also got your station officer, which sits in the passenger seat who makes all the calls. So if you successfully pass your senior firefighters, that means if the station officer's away for whatever reason, it means that you can be the station officer. So it's not a full-time station officer rank per se, but it means that you are you you can be a station officer if there isn't a station officer there. So in general, these um, your senior firefighters program lasts uh, 12 months. If you're unsuccessful, then you can extend for an extra 20. You can do another 12 months. If you're unsuccessful again, then I think you have to have a year off before trying the whole process again. But you have a lot more assignments. The assignments, um, so I've actually recently just done my senior firefighters. So the assignments, I was kind of excited about the assignments because I thought they'd be really practical, but actually the assignments are more kind of theory and learning how to like run the station and budgets and that sort of thing because obviously <laughs> that's what you're doing rostering. you know yeah ro- oh rostering yeah and so i kind of thought it'd be really practical assignments but it's actually kind of more the day-to-day running of the station which is obviously important if you're going to be the station officer um so yeah a lot more assignments and they're kind of a lot more in depth than when you're doing you know for the first three years um and then toward, like right at the end so the last thing you do is your practical assessment for your senior firefighters and that's where it gets pretty hectic. So the you have to do what's called a, well, you do like a two-pump scenario for a fire and a hazardous materials. So for the, um, so you're acting as a station officer, so you sit in the passenger seat and how the, how the exam starts is, so you're in the truck, uh, you have, so you have four people in your truck, including you, you have a second truck with four people in it. And you're running a job, so there's a mock job, so you get turned out by a radio to, you know, structure fire, childcare facility or whatever and then you've got to pass all the correct um you know radio messages gather as much information as you can um and you know kind of do it in the right way that they'll give it to you if you kind of you know so once it's confirmed structure fire people reported missing then you would like upgrade the incident but you know if you upgraded the incident prior to getting that information you know then that would be across so you've got to kind of do it all as if you would in you know in real life um, and then you arrive at the incident um, and you've got, you got an assessor in the back of the truck with you or in the back of the truck and he'll be telling you what you see and he'll show you some pictures. He's like, all right, this is your, you're rocking up. This is what you see, like smoke coming out of the building. Um, and then, yeah, so you hop out of the truck and then you run, there's actors there, um, which is most of the time be senior management, um, you know, so there'll be senior management who'll be like the owner occupier of the house who's freaking out and, you know, you're questioning him and like, it's it is it's, it's really it's really really good um and like the practice for it is like it's good fun and it's it's good because you really start to kind of understand more about being a fiery when you're actually having to run the incident but so anyway you run the whole incident and it takes like an hour you task all your crews you pass all your radio information um and then you also do the same thing for like a hazardous materials um incident the the fire incident is a bit more hectic because you know it's more like it's happened like you know you've got to get onto it really quick you've got to do it all really fast whereas with the hazardous material stuff it's like very much hurry up and wait so you know you stop you stop down the road you get the you get the information you need you know you'll set up shop maybe like a minimum of 50 meters away and everything you do is a lot more kind of like i don't want to say strategic but very much um just slowly and calculated um and then provided you're successful in all of that there are also um, there's also a lot of questions about so as as a station officer or as a firefighter there's this thing called the Fire and Emergency Services Act which I'm sure you would have something you would have something similar and it basically gives you powers to do various things so during my um, two pump fire I like when QPS rocked up in inverted commas um, to ask what I needed 
Um, I said, hey guys, uh, thanks for coming. I'll give them a quick brief of what's going on. I say, I need you to close this road for me. And then after the assessment, they'll ask a bunch of questions like saying, okay, you ask QPS to close the road. What gives you the power to do that? And you'd be like, Foreign Emergency Services Act, part six, section 53, subsection G is, yeah. you know, allows you to close to close um, any, any road or public access. And so like, like knowing, so it's one thing kind of knowing that you can do it, but then you also need to know where in the legislation allows you to do it specifically. Yeah. Question about what happens if someone's parked over a hydrant or something like that? Oh, you find different hydrant. <laughs> yeah. That would be annoying. It'd be <laughs> annoying. Uh, and a trick for young players as well. It's your first time um, rocking up to a structure fire if you're driving because it's like moth, moth to a flame. Mm. We've, you've, we've had it before where somebody will park the fire truck on top <laughs> of the hydrant, you know, which is like such a savage inconvenience. Yeah. Um, and it's not like the, the boys on the truck will give you a bit of shit for doing that either. No, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice about it. Yeah, at the time, you'd cop some shit, but then afterwards, it'd be banter, but at the time, like, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and then after, so after you've like um, successfully become a senior firefighter, so that means you can be station officer. Um, and then after that, in general, so a lot of people do their senior firefighters immediately after, you know, doing their apprenticeship um, and becoming a first class. They'll do the senior firefighters. In general, people might wait five or ten years before doing the next step, which is to become the full-time station officer. And then the station officer is like the last proper um, operational rank. And then after that, you become an inspector. Um, which is more, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't really know the ins and outs of it, but like, you know, budgets, making the big decisions with like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then changing the rope over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No, that'd be above inspector. Um, but then you've got superintendent, chief super, AC. Yeah, all those people we try and avoid. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> You're in a meeting with one of them, you <laughs> don't want to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. And then the final thing I want to touch on is, I mean, you've been able to, experience some really cool sporting endeavors yes. um which i mean i'm really pissed off i don't think there's that many opportunities in the ambulance service but we get left out probably because there's no physical fitness for the, yeah. the ambos but you guys get to play the police in some various different sports and that yeah. sort of stuff so rugby league yeah so on um on 9 11 every year or close to 9 11 whatever the saturday or sunday around that is we always do a memorial day um like kind of like sports like sports day down in down in brizzy so there'll be maybe like 10 different sports like they do different sports every year but always there's always like a masters rugby union game there's always soccer there's always cricket there's now there's some like sorts of fighting there's basketball um and yeah so basically you just they'll send out an email a few months in advance and saying who's interested and you kind of submit your interest um, but in, in general, it's always like for, for the, for the rugby league, the rugby league's like the main event and we always do that last. And so it's far east versus police. Um, in general, it's always kind of like very similar team, but you know, you have a few people kind of retire each year from, from the playing footy. Um, and then a few new people come in, but yeah, it's really, really cool. It's good fun. Um, and we have a load of good players too. The average age that people get into the fire is like mid thirties. So we have a lot of guys who used to be real good footy players, you know, who played Q cup or whatever the equivalent is in New South Wales. We've even got a few guys um, who played um, like NRL as well. We've got um, Dane Carlaw used to play. He's actually just like retired from playing footy, but obviously like Queensland, I played for, played for the Kangaroos and mm. stuff, which is, which is so cool. Um, and then actually I've got a funny story about the first, the first year that I played in that game. So fresh out of academy. So I'd have been like 20, 22, 23. And um, so I'm playing in my first game, like super pumped. 
but I'm thinking it's like, you know, two government organizations playing. It's going to be <laughs> relatively, you know, respectful and, you know, clean game. Just before half time, it starts to get a bit punchy. And I think, fucking hell. Like, and then we get pulled into the sheds. It's like really nice sports complex where we do it at. So we got these great change rooms. And um, one of the, one of the fireys, I can't remember what rank he is, but he's like relatively like big dog. He's like our, um, he's our manager and coach. And I'm thinking at half time he's going to rip into us, you know, saying like, this is a family day, you know, pull your heads in. Um, and then at half time he goes, if one of those blank takes a swing at you, you have my permission to all go in. And I just think, holy shit. And then I just thought, man, how often can you punch a cop without getting in trouble? You know? 100%. Yeah. I only, only spent 10 minutes in jail rather than... Uh, yeah exactly but um no it's good, good experience and like all jokes aside it is like you know it's all good-hearted you know everyone plays hard and then and then everyone has beers afterwards um but we also get to do cool things like we do um uh, queensland fireys versus new south wales fireys once a year so like state of origin which is good fun um and we also have like an australian team and i say that again in inverted commas because um you know it's <laughs> it's queensland and new south wales you know but and and it's not like the highest standard or anything but we get to play the defense force like we played um the defense force on anzac day yeah um down at the allianz and so yeah. there was a curtain raiser for dragons roosters mm. um and it's so cool you know like you're playing in like a packed out stadium and you know even though no one's there to watch you everyone's rocking up to watch the nrl but like towards the end of the game like you know you're playing a packed out stadium and um obviously on anzac day everyone in the stadium would be you know the people that were watching everyone's going for defense force being Anzac Day <laughs> completely understandable you know I would be too um I scored like a try under the post like towards the end of the game and I'm like pumped everyone all my teammates are jumping at me and then I got a bunch of, a bunch of people like just like watching behind the post just like flipping me the birds like saying <laughs> boo like come on guys this is a big deal for me but massive deal oh it was it's so cool and it's all that kind of stuff is just like I don't know it's just it's like an awesome like, added benefit of you know 100 percent. so do they do you get time off from work to have to go down there is a there is a type of leave it's um kind of hard to get um they're talking about us going on a tour like the australian team going on a tour to the uk towards the end of this year or next year because um, that wouldn't get out of handed beers or anything no like. no no it'd be professional the whole time <laughs> um the, the boys actually went to new york for i think the 19th anniversary or the 20th anniversary of 9-11 a few years ago or maybe it would have been before that because it was just before i got in and um, yeah, they said it was like one of the craziest trips of their life. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully we do get to go on another it would tour. Would be unreal. Yeah. Um, and so what's? I mean, obviously, maybe possibly a bit of that on the horizon. But um, what's the next couple of years look like for you? I don't know. To be honest, I am. I'm really enjoying doing the vert rescue stuff and the mountain rescue. That's kind of like my, my little niche that I've kind of um, that, that I really enjoy. So maybe potentially try to progress further in that. Maybe become an instructor for like the level two courses and stuff in the not so distant future definitely not yet but you know in a few years time um potentially also do my station offices um just depending on my situation with where i'm stationed at the time and stuff um yeah we'll see we'll see but uh yeah no, nothing nothing imminent except the swift water course but i'm just taking it pretty easy take it as it comes so awesome and finally to wrap it up what advice would you give to someone either looking to join or that is just starting out their career and how would you best start it on the right foot? 
I think more than anything, just have a good attitude. Like um, when we were talking earlier about like what my interview was like, I didn't know anything really. In hindsight, I should have known more. I didn't really know any of the specifics, but like I just went in with as good an attitude as I could have. And whether, yeah, you're trying to get in or you're in, you know, if you've got a good attitude, people can read into that. And, you know, they'll, you know, they'll, if, if you, you know, you, you're a 90% of the way, they'll give you that extra 10 because you've got that good attitude, you know, and they want to see you succeed. Um, but yeah, if, if you're looking at getting in, definitely working on your physical fitness doesn't hurt um, because, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't run regularly, you know, that beep test might be hard. Um, doing like the online practice tests for um, the aptitude testing. Um, but also just, I mean, do as much research as you can, drop into a local fire station um, and just for your interview, if you say, oh yeah, I've been into X and Y stations, then straight away the interview panel like, oh cool, you know, he's really putting a bit of extra time. They might be able to give you some extra hints. If, if you know anybody that's a firefighter, you know, ask them to write you up kind of like a little cheat sheet of like, you know, two or three A4 pages of, you know, good to knows and, and that sort of thing. But yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for coming on and uh, joining us on the podcast. No, thanks, dude. Appreciate it. To this episode of the Code One Careers podcast. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, we are always open to feedback in the DMs. Now, if you or anyone you know is wanting to join a frontline career and is seeking some advice on how to prepare, then head over to our website at codeonecareers.com and book a free consult with me and we'll have a chat on how I can best help.